Well, good morning, church. It's uh, been about six months since I was last with you, and I have to share that I that I miss being here. I miss being in, in the church here on the island. You people are so uh, welcoming, and you have embraced Maureen and I from the very beginning, so we just wanted to say, again, thank you for that. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And our title of the message today is The Trouble with Tradition. The Trouble with Tradition. So let's pray to the Lord that he would help us. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We need him now and we need him always. But we pray, Lord, that you would reveal the things that you want us to know. This that we may leave this place knowing that we have heard from you and that we may be transformed by your word. Lord, we are also mindful of our pastor, Pastor Caleb, who is leading a mission team out in Africa. We pray, Lord, that your favor would continually rest upon him and the team. We pray that they would be used by you to bring souls to Christ, that they would continually equip the saints for the ministry of the word there, and that you would bring them back safely to us with a testimony of of everything that you've done in them and through them. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so I did two things this week that should frighten most people. I channel surfed and I watched all of cable news for a week. And then I began to think. It is a sad fact that our culture now favors wimps and weaklings and punishes people of strong convictions. If you hold to certain beliefs or defend a certain set of principles, you are considered ignorant, arrogant, and even bigoted. If you hold strongly to your own opinions, you are intolerant, unbending, and narrow. If you confront someone in error, you are unloving and rude. If you believe that there is a time that it's right to fight or resist what's being pushed down our throats, you're labeled as contentious and hateful. And even though we know in our hearts that the truth sets you free, something within us recoils a little When someone has the guts to state the truth without apology, doing it publicly to those who need to hear the truth. But if someone does not stand up to the challenge to those in authority who have departed from the truth, then every playground will be run by bullies. Every nation will be controlled by tyrants, and every church will be intimidated by legalists. Every culture and every generation needs someone who publicly challenges the group, the directors of groupthink and dares to speak the truth. We we need to to cast out this religion that's often referred to as basin religion. You know, when Pilate said to Jesus, truth, what is truth? We need to get back to the truth. We need someone to stand up and fight for the truth. And in first century Israel, Jesus 
was just that kind of man. Although you didn't know it from his earlier days in ministry in and around the Galilee. In the beginning, he took a gentle approach to his opposition, choosing to speak softly, despite feeling intense frustration that often bordered on anger. And he would counter the lies and the falsehoods with reasoning. For the most part, Jesus steered clear of conflict, choosing instead to spend his time proclaiming the truth throughout the land and concentrating on those who wished to hear the gospel. He simply brushed aside those who resisted the truth and he pressed on with his agenda. Do you remember what he said earlier on in Mark when he sent his disciples out two by two? This is what he said. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, Shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, he was saying, forget you. Jesus wasn't afraid of conflict. He wasn't intimidated by the religious, uh, powerful people who were controlling the church. Confronting the opposing religious elite of Israel just didn't fit into his agenda yet. So having completed several preaching tours in and around the Galilee, and after sending out his disciples to heal the sick, to cast out demons and preach the good news of the gospel, the time had come for Jesus to turn his attention to Jerusalem, the stronghold of religious and theological error. Now we note at this point he doesn't take his ministry to Jerusalem. He'll get there in a couple of chapters. But instead, he began to confront various factions from Israel as part of his agenda, becoming increasingly assertive in his approach. Up to this point, he had countered the religious authorities with clear teaching and reasoning from the scriptures. But that time had now come to an end. So when this delegation comes up from Jerusalem to Capernaum to pick a fight with Jesus, the gloves come off. The men who perverted the Lord's covenant with Abraham and had turned Judaism into a legalistic cult needed to feel the rebuke and the wrath and the condemnation of Almighty God Himself. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Mark? We are in chapter 7, a new chapter. We're going to read the first 13 verses. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of His disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, They found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pictures, copper vessels, and couches. And then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, 
Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered them and said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pictures and cups, and many other such things that you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here in Mark 7, we see a dramatic, a dramatic contrast with Mark chapter 6. The last couple of weeks, Pastor Caleb has been surgically taking us through chapter 6, where Jesus is now at an all-time high. He, he's fed 5,000, 20,000 possibly if you count children and, and, and women. He walks on water. He heals the sick. People are coming to Jesus in droves. They are chasing Jesus as if he's got free tickets to a Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) Jesus was now beloved by the people. He legitimately is a rock star right now. But the religious authorities despised him. So in verse 1 and 2, we see the religious and spiritual elite The religious lawyers surround Jesus looking for something, anything that they can denounce upon him. Make no mistake, they are on a fault-finding mission, and unfortunately his disciples give them the perfect opportunity. They eat with defiled, this is ceremonially unclean and unwashed hands. And church, this has nothing to do with hygiene. It is all about ritual purity and religious traditions that go way beyond what scriptures commanded. These traditions were used to establish the spiritual superiority of the Pharisees and the scribes over the common people. Now Mark, in writing to a Gentile Roman audience, he writes this in verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. So it is for the benefit of his Gentile readers that Mark explains this peculiar ritual that's going on. 
But his brief description of the ceremonial hand-washing does little for us, really. And it's probably because Mark does not want to ridicule his Jewish brothers and sisters. Alfred Edishmein was a Jewish scholar who converted to Christianity back in the 1800s. Here's what he said. As the purifications were so frequent, and care had to be taken that the water had not been used for other purposes or something falling into it that might discolor or defile it, large vessels or, or jars were kept for that purpose. They might be of any material, but most of the time they were stone. And it was the practice to draw water out of these cups, out of these jars, with a cup measuring up to one and a half eggshells. And the water was poured on both hands, which may be free from anything covering them, dirt, gravel, mortar, something like that. And the hands were to be lifted up so as to make the water run down to the wrist in order to ensure that the whole hand was washed and that the water polluted by the hand did not run against the fingers again. Accordingly, all this means is the Jews, they, the Pharisees didn't eat unless they washed their hands in this ceremonious way up to the wrist. This excessively detailed, tedious process became highly symbolic for the Pharisees who saw this as an expression of the love for God. And Pharisees gladly endured this and other similar rituals every day, in every sphere of life, all for the sake of pleasing God. And what they expected of themselves, they expected of anyone who called themselves a covenant of the, of the Lord. And these rituals were never meant to be done outside the Levitical priesthood. You see, by the time Jesus came around, the Pharisees made this a common practice. It became the custom not to eat without a rigorous process of hand-washing. They did this to hold up the tradition of the elders. Now, Moses received the law from God on Sinai way back in the book of Exodus. And over the centuries, beginning, I believe, with Ezra, Oral customs or traditions were handed down from one generation to another. These traditions were what we refer to as fence laws. The commandments of God, the law of Moses, the, the first five books of the Bible. These fence laws were created by the rabbis to enforce the law. If you did not break the oral law or the tradition, you could not break the law of God. Now, it's interesting, the word Pharisee. When we think of the word Pharisee, we think of a hypocrite, one who, who wears a mask. But the Hebrew word, perushim, actually means separatist, set apart, holy. The start of fencing the word of God, was to protect the people 
from coming close to violating the law of God. And then the Mishnah, which was codified in about the second or third century, that wound up, wound up having 613 prohibitions which tried to protect people from getting close to breaking of the law. And then the Talmud comes, acting as a commentary to the Mishnah, developing a set of oral traditions or a set of regulations telling Jews how to avoid breaking the Torah inadvertently. I want you to see this. Jesus, in all his teachings, never quoted the Mishnah or the Talmud. In fact, Jesus broke the traditions of the elders. He actually had no respect for it and thought it was meaningless when compared to the law of God. That's important. Okay. Here's what I found. He, he only used the law of God. He only used scripture when teaching. And that brings us to our first point that I want us to see. The lawyer's charge. The lawyer's charge. Religious ritual and legalistic traditions had taken over the lives of the Pharisees, enslaving them rather than freeing them. However, they were blind to their self-bondage. So they challenged Jesus with this air of pride and spiritual superiority and self-righteousness. Look at verse 5. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? They can't even cite a scriptural justification for their practice. But no matter, they perceive themselves to be firmly established in the right. Jesus and his disciples were not. Jesus, even though he was against the traditions, allows for the oral law, but not at, out of expense to the written law. So the Pharisees challenged Jesus on something rel relatively minor, right? I mean, compared to what happened in chapters 5 and 6, this may appear to be a small and minor incident. But the Pharisees were on a fault-finding mission, and even though it was minor, it was still serious enough, serious enough to discredit Jesus. For this... For them, this was nearly the opening round of a strategy that would end with a murdered Jesus. But as, as experienced boxers know, you can never let your opponent dictate the fight. The Pharisees had come to dispose of an insignificant, untrained, upstart rabbi from a discredited town of Nazareth. What they didn't bank on was trying to match wits with the author of truth himself in human flesh. And although this is a relatively minor matter, we today must realize that it can be often misunderstood and applied against truth. This is a warning for us today in this passage. Tradition can never hold up to the standard of truth that is in this book. 
Now, this is the nature of true discipleship. The religious leaders understood that if, that if the disciples did not wash their hands properly, it was an indictment against Jesus. He was their rabbi. They were following Jesus. And what they did was a reflection on Jesus. So again, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elder? I want you to notice the wording of the question. The primary concern was not that the disciples ate with unwashed, unclean hands. It was that they didn't comply with the tradition of the elders. So that's the charge. Second thing that we come to is the Lord's reply in verse 6. Listen, one thing Jesus constantly did was call out hypocrites and expose them for who they truly are. I want you to notice Jesus makes no reference to the conduct of his disciples in the story. Instead, he exposes the heart of the matter. Is the true source of spiritual authority traditions of men, or is it the word of God? Folks, that's the questions that's asked of us this morning. That's why this text, this passage is relevant. What will determine how you think and live your life? Because the Bible today, if we're honest, has lost much of its authority in the Western culture. Folks, there's got to be a turning back to the Word of God. There's got to be a turning back to the respect of the authority of the unchanging, infallible Word of God. Because that is where, the only place where we're going to find truth. Now, tradition means that which was handed down. The message of the gospel is handed down, right? It's what Paul means when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first important importance what I also received. It's what Jude means in verse 3 when he says, contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It was passed down. Listen, Jesus was not against tradition. He was against empty tradition, where there was ritual without reality. And Jesus was against tradition that exalted itself above the Word of God. The Bishop J.C. Ryle once wrote this. This passage contains a humbling picture of what nature is capable of doing in religion. And by nature, he means men. It is one of these scriptures which we ought to be frequently and diligently studying by all who desire the prosperity of Christ's church. And by prosperity, he's not talking about your tithes and your offerings. He's talking about you and your movement to spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about. That's the sign of a healthy church. And Jesus begins with this scathing indictment, calling the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites. Verse 6, 
He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? They were nothing more than religious actors and pretenders. They say all the right things about God, but their hearts are still ungodly. Their religion is all words and all show. It's what we call skin-deep religion. And what's the result? Isaiah says it. The result was vain, purposeless worship. Worship that God neither welcomes nor accepts. For evidence, Jesus says they teach as doctrines the commands of men and abandon the command of God and hold the tradition of men. They held the, that the ultimate authority for spiritual life was both scripture and tradition. But if ever there was a conflict between the two, tradition won out every Sometimes the Bible wasn't even considered. We have our traditions. That is all we need. So in a sense, legalism replaces the word of God. Man-made rules and regulations become the object of our obedience while God's commands get pushed aside. The Constitution and bylaws often have the final word in the operation of a church. Warren Worsby, he said this, we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church tradition in light of God's word and then be courageous enough to make changes. Sometimes we foolishly push away the only trustworthy and infallible source of authority. Can I say that that is an act of spiritual suicide? Have you seen the the sad progression in our text here this morning? First, they teach the commands of men in verse 7. Then they leave the commands of God in verse 8. Next, they reject the commands of God in verse 9. And finally, they make void the word of God in verse 13. And if we are not careful, we will fail to see our own hypocrisy in a progression type of way. Listen, we all know it's possible to be a a hypocrite, don't we? We see it clearly in others, don't we? It's when it's within us that we become spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. Some potential examples of, of this legalism in the contemporary church can be found in annual church business meetings, deacon meetings, church discipline, church practices. What should we wear to church? What should we prohibit from wearing to church? What's our meeting time? What type of worship should we have? We have all the right boxes checked. We're good. But lists are so easy to check off, aren't they? Examining your heart isn't. Can you provide a scriptural basis for everything that you believe and do? 
Are you a text-driven or tradition-driven Christian? That's my question to you today. The difference is crucial. I thank God regularly that Christian Renewal Church is a text-driven, Bible-believing church, and it is our only standard. I praise God that this church's leadership is grounded in the Word of God and bathed in a pool of prayer. Pastor Caleb has often said, we need the teachings of Jesus regularly to move to maturity as a church and as individuals. We cannot separate the ordinary means of grace. We must be about God's word. We must be about prayer. We must be about fellowship. We must be about fasting. We must be about communion and baptism. Those are the ordinary means of grace that we cannot deviate from. How are we doing on that? Let me plug our fast coming up on July 21st. If you've never participated in a fast, it is a way to be drawn nearer to God where you give up your dependence on everything else but Him. So beginning in verse 9, we can also see that legalism resists the Word of God. Not all traditions are bad. They become bad when we put them on the same place as Scripture or in place of Scripture. It is a Bible-plus kind of religion. In adding to the Bible, you, for all practical purposes, make null and void the Bible. And Jesus makes this crystal clear as he moves into round two with the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, it's no contest. In fact, the beatdown is darn right ugly. The exposure of sinful hearts is always painful, isn't it? When, when we reflect what's in our own heart, and we come to realize that we're broken sinners, it's sometimes painful to admit. So Jesus now gives his own example that settles the issue. He goes to the scripture, pointing to Moses, the writings of Moses, pointing out what they clearly teach. And to make his point clear, Jesus compared one of their traditions to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Notice not only does he quote from Exodus and Deuteronomy, he throws in that little closing from Leviticus. Whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. And I imagine there are some children here today who are thankful that Jesus fulfilled the civil and ceremonial laws. But the principle is clear. God calls children to honor and respect their parents. However, the Pharisees have created a theological loophole now, sometimes men would take a sacred vow to devote something, money or, or possessions, to the Lord. And that devoted thing came, became known as korban. Basically means to be set apart for God. 
This was perfectly good and indeed a godly practice. But the Pharisees trusted the principle of Corban and gave it precedence over God's law. God had commanded his people to love and honor parents. And while in normal circumstances, a parent will do whatever he or she can do to help their children grow up, and there are times when sons and daughters should be helping their parents. I want you to think now on this example of a relatively poor parent whose children do quite well. As the parents grow old and are perhaps in some need, how fitting is it that the children would offer whatever help that they can, can to give their mother and father who have poured out their life's energy on their children? It, it's such a beautiful thing to see such care being made by the children for their parents. It is a joy when children get to pay back in a different kind of coinage to their parents. Jesus envisions that type of situation. Here is a young man. He does not anticipate that his parents will ever need his help. So in his desire to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, he pronounces his possessions Corban. His parents can no longer benefit from them. But what if some unexpected tragedy strikes and the parents stand in need? Surely in these circumstances, something should be able to be done to honor mother and father, right? The ruling of the Pharisees was that nothing can be done, not even to alleviate sickness. The tragedy was that the Pharisees actually led those they advised to breach one of God's commandments. In fact, it's the commandment that yields a blessing. Under the guise of religious faithfulness, they encourage disobedience to the law of God. And Jesus says in verse 9, All too well you reject the commandments of God, that you may keep your tradition. What kind of logic is that? Jesus tells them that that kind of reasoning makes void the word of God, sets up man-made traditions over God's commandments, and opens the door for many more such actions. Listen to me. That kind of reasoning reveals the hardness of heart, the hypocrisy of our worship, the disobedience of our actions, all in the name of religion. And here's the thing. These aren't atheists or secularists. These are the religious spiritual leaders of Israel. They had positioned their traditions in the place of Scripture and positioned themselves in the place of God. John Calvin was right. The heart is an idol factory. And some of its best tools are religious traditions. Truth should concern us all this morning because I 
may be as guilty as the Pharisees and not even see it. Zach, can you and the worship team come on up? So how do we apply this to ourselves? You know, there are basically only two approaches to religion. Each one of them can be summed up in a single word. Do or done. The The world says the problem is out there. And the solution to answer the question is, what can I do? The Bible says the problem is in here. And the answer is what Jesus has already done. You see, in legalism, we think better of ourselves than Jesus. But in salvation, we think of ourselves in the same way Jesus thinks of us. That we are hopeless, helpless, broken sinners in desperate need of a Savior. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says this. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. When the Lord examines your heart this morning, what does he see? Does he see a self-righteous legalist trusting in what I do or a humble sinner trusting in only what Jesus has done? The difference is of eternal significance. Pastor Brad, can you come on up and with the altar team ministry get to place? I just want to close with this. Luke 18. You know where I'm going. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and thus prayed with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortionists unjust adulterers or even as that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I, I, I. But the tax collector, standing afar with his eyes not even looking up to heaven, beats his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. Merit or mercy? Merit or mercy? Are we like the Pharisees thinking we merit inclusion into God's kingdom based on legalistic beliefs? Or are we like that tax collector? Knowing that we need mercy to enter God's kingdom. Are you leaning on the doctrines of men? Or the word of God. You see, the trouble with tradition is that it leads you away from the word of God and directs you to the path of legalism. I pray that this church be grounded and stand firm on the word of God. Amen.